This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, our first meeting since the Ontario budget, or should I call it an election platform, since that dropped last Thursday. CARP is happy about one item in that document, the new home care credit. Is there anything else that looks good to the advocates there? And we all know Zoomers vote in overwhelming numbers, 75% by the usual tally. But is there enough from any party to inspire them to the ballot box this time? This week's guest panelist is in a great position to talk about that. I'd like to welcome Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, along with our stalwarts, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And of course, we always want to hear from you. The numbers to call 416. 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. Hi Libby. Hi Libby. Well, let us begin with our guest Daryl Bricker. Daryl, do you think that uh, the Zoomer demographic will vote in the same numbers this time around? And and my overarching question is: Are they being taken for granted. Will they vote on the same levels as they did previously? My expectation is will be yes, provided that there's some dy- dynamism in this campaign. Uh, Zoomers tend to be uh, overwhelmingly more habitual voters than some of the younger generations, so they just they just participate more often. But all groups tend not to participate as much if the campaign's not dynamic. So if the campaign is dynamic, I think you'll see high participation from uh, from Zoomers. If the campaign isn't as dynamic and potentially not going to be this time, um, then uh, probably a lower rate of participation, but still one of the higher rates of participation of all the groups in the population. Uh, interesting. Last week, uh, some of our guests on the show were predicting the lowest turnout in years. David, uh, would you concur with that? Well, I think uh, Daryl hit it on the, the head with the word dynamic, yes or no. Right now, it's sort of hasn't really gotten started. I think it's complicated this time out because some of the biggest problems, namely inflation, see in the U.S. as well as here, are seen as federal issues, money supply, Bank of Canada, interest rates. Uh, so Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, what are they going to do about that? You know, nothing. So they're operating within a a constrained landscape, and that may work to the benefit of Ford and putting the electorate to sleep a little bit and saying, you know, there's not much going on here that's very dramatic that we can expect. Bill, I was talking to you last Thursday, and you liked that new home care credit, but you were pretty disappointed otherwise. Yeah, generally, uh, CARP members were uh, and will be very disappointed uh, by the budget. There were as usual, lots of repeats of uh, previous promises, but all still just uh, promises and a few of the uh, the additional things that CARP had been hoping would, would be in the uh, budget. And then to see it's really just an election uh, uh, budget and everything will hang on what decisions are made after uh, June the 2nd, whether it's the Conservatives back in or anyone else, uh, leaves us really uh, hanging in terms of uh, putting much trust in the promises in this budget. Hmm. Daryl, the, the whole thing to a certain extent struck me as being very old-fashioned, where it was this kind of cannon spray of piecemeal initiatives uh, designed to placate little groups, hard to put it all together, hard to see uh, what a strategy is in there. Yeah, no no specifics. That's uh, no, no, no immediate actions. And of course, uh, prior to an election, I guess they'd say they can't 
really, yeah, really do uh, do that. But uh, nothing that uh, would make people think that they're going to see action soon. Uh, Daryl? I was going to say that uh, it, it seemed like a very specific target to me, um, and that was suburban commuters. Uh, and homeowners. That's that's who the conservatives are really targeting. And, and it makes sense. I mean, because every election now in the province of Ontario is really easy to understand. Downtown votes progressive. Rural, smaller town Ontario votes conservative. And the swing vote is car commuting suburbanites. So they were very clearly targeting their initiatives at that group. We're disproportionately concerned right now about the cost of living and especially the cost of housing. And what about demographically, Daryl? Demographically, I think it's really looking at people between the ages of about 30 and 60. Um, and those are the people who are still in mostly their, uh, you know, working life, particularly middle class people who are in that, uh, in that group who are feeling a ton of pressure right now, particularly on the question of housing. Uh, well, um, people towards the older end of that spectrum, I would think, are already settled with housing. It's uh, the younger demographics that are being squeezed on that note, no? Yeah, I thought that. Um, and then I looked at our polling today, because we just actually we just put out a poll on people's views of housing, which is quite pessimistic. But if you look at people in the range of 35 to 60, 35 to 55, they're just as pessimistic as younger people. And the reason for that is because people have put off their family formation to a lot later in their lives these days. So, you know, the average Canadian got married back in 1960s and around the age of, you know, 21, 22. Now they get married, if at all, in the age, you know, in their early 30s. So a lot of the decisions that used to be taken earlier in their lives are being taken later, which means that the housing issue is affecting people at a later age than we, we, may, have, we may have thought in the past. You know, David, you and I have talked about this <laughs> Many, many times about decisions being put off, and it it makes complete sense if we are living so much longer than we used to, then it makes sense that certain things are delayed. So do you see this just as a natural result of increased longevity? I think in part, but I also think that the parties have decided particularly for that regardless of what my grand strategy is and regardless of what um, I do for the other demographics and the groups, and I agree with Daryl completely about the suburbs versus the downtown, but regardless of that, I've got to have a flagship stance for seniors and it's going to be around health care and home care and long-term care, I'm always going to be able to wave that flag. I'm going to make that a permanent part of my agenda. So if I'm saying I've got to rebuild the highways, I've got to expand the highways, I've got to build, you know, infrastructure. Um, yes, but I'm always going to have time and, and something I can sign the, shine the spotlight on about health care. And I think they've almost made that a permanent visible subtopic. What is my visible announcement? What is my feel-good announcement on healthcare 24-7, month in, month out? I got to have a marquee item there. And I think that's part of his strategy. Hmm. Uh, the other parties are focusing on healthcare. Uh, Daryl, uh, what do you make of that? I mean, at least so far, we had a liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, saying that he was going to make home care the centerpiece of his long-term care strategy. And Andrea Horvath, who we are going to be talking to a little later in the show, uh, she's talking about cutting wait times by hiring internationally trained nurses. Well, when you look at the polling on um, the issues that are most important to Ontarians and the parties that lead on those issues if they are to be elected, um, when you take a look at health care, uh, number one issue in the province and the party that leads by the most on that, and it's a significant amount, is the NDP. You get to the next issue, and it's COVID and the management of the COVID crisis. You look at which party leads on that, it's the Liberals. The Conservatives really only lead on anything that's related to cost of living. So uh, anything that relates to economic management. So they've got makeup work to do on the issue of health care. It's not a strength for them. Uh, but what I think you're going to see during the course of the campaign is, yes, they're going to be talking in, 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 to a certain extent about health care. But what they're really going to be pushing is everything that's related to that middle class cost of living issue, which is absolutely dominating in terms of the partisan 
nature of uh, of in the intensity, particularly the intensity of emotion in politics right now in this province. Well, yeah, and uh, actually throughout the country. Do you see anything setting up as a suburbs versus city dynamic, which we have seen before? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think that really what it's going to be related to is that sort of middle-class aspirational homeowner uh, that the Conservatives are going to be targeting. I mean, 90% of the uh, growth, growth in this province in the last 20 years that he has been in car commuting suburbs. That's why they're so important. And so that it's not so much older, you know, the older part of the population. That's the dynamic voting part, the switching part of the population. It's that middle, that's that middle group that they're, that they're really going to be focused on. And, and you've seen it, you know, already with things like, for example, refunding people the, uh, the money that they paid to uh, renew their license plates. That's being done for a very specific reason. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that uh, I agree completely. And I think that healthcare, when I talked about it being a marquee item for Ford, I'm not uh, saying it isn't a defensive item for Ford. In other words, I can't cede that ground. I can't yield that ground completely. I've always got to have some marquee item around health care, even though it doesn't make me the winner or the leader. I can't leave the, that battlefield you know, empty and unoccupied. So they, they are picking some... Uh, I keep saying marquee value items, but I don't. I agree. I don't think they necessarily feel that's even decisive. It's just that where they got to play to shore up a weakness. While the real battle is exactly, you know, as Daryl said, people who are in the suburbs and who want their cars, and they don't necessarily uh, want more bike lanes and more public transit in there. And that's who he's appealing to. I, I think that's that's perfectly true. Uh, Bill, on the housing thing, though, you know, a lot of older Canadians are troubled that their kids can't buy houses anywhere close to them. Well, that's, uh, that's true. And one of the things that uh, fascinates me about uh, Daryl's evaluation, and I think he's, it's quite true, uh, you know, the, the Conservatives focusing on uh, the financial area may not be as, as, uh, <laughs> as unusual as we expect, Although health care is always a real concern for our CART members, when we do our surveys of CART members, the number one personal issue for years now has been financial security, really worried about their financial future, whether they'll outlive their uh, their money. And the Conservatives may, may be right. That may be uh, more important to many people than uh, the ongoing concern about health care. Hmm. What do you think of that, Daryl? All the guests are agreed. You know, healthcare is going to be, uh, you know, somewhere in there, particularly because the opposition parties are going to be pushing on it. But what it tends to be is a fairly nonpartisan issue. Uh, is people, you know, they even though they'll say the NDP will do a better job on on managing healthcare, they, it, it doesn't motivate them to vote NDP. Because if you just looked at the most important issues in the province right now, the NDP should be well ahead. And in fact, they're trailing both the Conservatives and the Liberals. Even though people are most concerned about health care and most believe that the NDP will do the best job. And the reason is because it's not really seen as a particularly uh, animating partisan voting issue in this campaign. And, and I agree that the idea that the Conservatives will leave this space vacant to the opposition parties, I agree that they won't. They'll do a, several things, probably aligned with um, the places in the province that they, from a geographic perspective, that they feel uh, most uh, uh, most uh, vulnerable in. Again, I would point to the suburbs or probably see hospital announcements and other types of announcements in those places because that's where they have to win. And ultimately, you know, uh, politics in, in, in Canada, but, you know, more specifically in this province is really a geographic more than a demographic game. So it's appealing to the appropriate parts of the geography and able to be able to win the right seats in the right places. The, the other thing is that housing is an issue, and I agree, is not necessarily an issue that um, the Zoomer demographic has got solved and salted away and we're fine. Uh, I was talking to one of the CARP uh, uh, benefit partners that's uh, Home Equity Bank and reverse mortgages, not to get into that, as a topic, but their business is up, nothing serious, 50%, 5-0 over the past year. And they told me that a big number of people who are taking out reverse mortgages are using the money to help their adult kids buy a house. So I've got all this equity tied up in my home, thank you very much, and by the way, it might make me 
a hostile voter against dropping those prices anytime soon. But I've got all this equity sitting there and I need to monetize it. I've got adult kids who I could maybe a condo at least, if not a uh, detached home. So it is a topic for uh, this demographic and it is smart to pay some attention to that. A couple of things that, that I would note. I don't know how many people actually believe that any politician of any stripe can have a significant effect on house prices. Certainly, they are differing in terms of, you know, building highways and all of that and making it easier to drive. But um, I, I don't know, Bill, do people believe that? No, I don't think they, they do. I think they're, they blame house prices on, uh, uh, on uh, uh, things that have happened outside of government itself. They're looking to government to, government to help them deal with uh, rising house prices and, and the problems, but they don't think the government has caused it. A couple of things. Daryl, how much comes down to personality, the personality of the leader? How much of this turns on, you know, okay, you're saying that people think the NDP has a better plan for health care, but maybe they aren't enthused by Andrea Horvath or Stephen Del Duca, for that matter. Well, you know, there are rare politicians um, these days who can really kind of cut through all of the the noise that's out there and all of the typical things that you see out of politicians to really stand out. And Doug Ford is one of those rare politicians who love him or hate him. He stands out as a personality. It's very similar to our prime minister. They really stand out and define everything that happens around them. And this is a big problem for Stephen Del Duca in particular, uh, to try and get noticed in the course of this election campaign, but also for Andrea Horvath. It's, it's really as much about her versus him as it is, you know, about the Conservatives versus the NDP or, you know, even the Liberal Party. So his personality really is going to dominate an awful lot of this campaign just because of who he is. Hmm. I, uh, I, well, I, can I ask a question, actually, of yeah. Daryl, on that? It's interesting because if you're a Zoomer, if you're in your... 60s or older, particularly 70s or 80s or older, and then you grew up during the heyday of the big blue machine when the conservatives ruled Ontario, most of which time the liberals ruled Ottawa. And Ontario kind of liked, historically, having Party A in power in Ottawa and Party B in Ontario. I see in the polls, I don't know whether it's in Daryl's company, but many other polls, that the, conser- the leaderless federal conservatives uh, have opened up a lead over uh, Trudeau in the, in the popularity polls. And I wonder if, you know, the conservatives are going to benefit from simply saying, you know, I don't like Trudeau and uh, we need somebody to offset the liberals anyway. And that's one of the reasons I'm going to vote uh, conservative, because historically that's certainly been a pattern in Ontario. True. Yeah, I think the pattern is, is you know, because uh, we've tested a lot of this over the years. And I, I, it, it works out that way, but I don't know if that's the motivation. It might be the, the motivation this time, though. Uh, the, the, the point I was making is, is that you don't get many election campaigns in which the personality of, of one individual becomes the dominant element. So, you know, there's going to be a few campaigns that are going to be like that. Jason Kenney is going to be in a similar situation. Uh, uh, Legault in Quebec is going to be in a similar situation. But most often, um, it's not really that big a factor. Um, but this is one of those, you know, people can evaluate the different choices based on policies, or the parties or the record or whatever. And the leaders are part of the mix, but they're not like the mix. In Ontario this time around, it's mostly going to be a reaction to what people think about Doug Ford personally, which is very different than, say, under Bill, under Bill Davis, where, you know, you, people, you know, weren't, weren't furious at Bill Davis or didn't love him overwhelmingly. They sort of liked him. But what we're seeing in terms of reaction to Doug Ford this time is very different. And by the way, in terms of best premier, he's well ahead of his opponents. Well, the, the, par- the party race is a lot closer. The premier race is not. That's that's interesting because what I thought was going on here was that uh, people are satisfied with Doug Ford's performance, uh, but not enthused. It's just that they are less enthused about the other leaders. 
No, I think it's a bit more than that. I think people, uh, they have a very personal response to him. It's not, a, it's not an intellectual response. Well, I know there are people who really like him. like him or really don't like him. Which is not that common to be honest. Most mm-hmm. often, there's, we get a lot of vanilla in politics. Yeah. He, st- he stands out. So people's reaction to him and what he says during the course of the campaign is going to have a disproportionate impact on, on the outcome. Hmm. He hasn't really said anything controversial lately, or am I forgetting, David? <laughs> no, I think you're right. But I, I think I think Daryl's right. But I also think that, don't forget, every election is a vote for, but a vote instead of. So it's I'm voting for... Doug Ford to keep on being premier or for Del Duca or Horvath to be premier instead. And I think the decisive thing, which Gerald just said, is that he's way ahead on the premier side so that June 3rd, somebody's going to take over, right? Which one do I want, even though I may not like their party that much and even though I may... Um, but again, at the provincial level in Ontario, it's rarely been ideological. It's rarely been ultra left wing, hard line right wing. It's always been who's a competent manager, who deals with the bread and butter issues uh, the best. And I think Ford is trying to kind of invoke a little bit of Bill Davis in that I'm a competent manager. I'm friendly to everybody. I'm everybody's champion and also take advantage of his vivid personality. He, he could win-win in that way if that's his strategy. You know, quite a bit has been made about the fact that he seems to be getting along really well with Justin Trudeau, who of course is the other person that Daryl has been talking about. Uh, Bill, do you think that's a factor? They say, hey, he's able to deal with them. I think that I think that is a factor. I think that uh, they they see him as uh, being uh, competent in terms to uh, uh, opposing and standing up for what uh, Ontarians want, but still getting along with the uh, federal government, so that the uh, uh, the money that's flowing out of there and can come into the province can be helpful to the province. And I think they're giving him uh, credit for being able to uh, to do that. Let's take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thanks. Every promise sounds great, but what is their plan? Where's the money coming from to cover the loss of revenue that came from, like, renewal, license plate, etc.? And how can they cut the ridership to a buck a ride? Like, who's, where's the money going to come from to cover transit, new roads, and Everything, et cetera. Oh, it's going to come from you and me, Sita. Exactly. <laughs> they're not saying that. Well, right? get out your checkbook, Sita. They, thanks for your call. Well, great, great question, though. Yeah. Well, revenues have gone up. Yeah. I mean, the province for the moment is yeah, doing yeah. well, and they're spending a lot of that money. I mean, yeah. they're known as fiscal stewards, but according to the financial accountability officer, they could have balanced the books next year, but they're not going to balance the books till what, 28, 29? Yep. 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 Uh, because they're uh, spraying all this money around. Uh, Daryl, does anyone care about that anymore? Do these big, huge debt and deficit numbers, do, do they have any meaning anymore? Not in this particular cycle. Not as much as they normally do. And to the extent that they do matter, they matter to conservative voters. Uh, the, the real issue right now is that I think the province is counting on a combination of uh, economic growth and, uh, and population growth, because the population of Ontario continues to grow. What they aren't factoring in, which is really relevant to uh, uh, this conversation over the longer term, is what we saw from Statistics Canada um, in, in the most recent census that just came out about how rapidly aging the population is in Canada and in Ontario and how little that's being taken into account by the um, by any of the political parties in terms of what they're talking about. So longer term, the bigger issue that we're going to be dealing with isn't just a revenue issue. It's a population change issue that very few people are, are really engaged with right now. But, but, but the phrase longer term and the phrase the bigger issue have mm-hmm. never been present in Canadian politics in my memory. It's always no, been... No, that's all true. I, always been what will get me through the next... reality out of it. Yeah, no, no, I'm agreeing with you, but it, it's... Yeah. it's um, they always think short-term. They always think, I'll worry about it after I win the election. I'll kick it down the road. Um, 
And they do. And uh, I that, think he's and right. That is, a very, that is a very bad sign for us, correct, <laughs> yeah, Bill? It, that's not good. No, I think, it, I think you're right. Bill, are you exactly there? Exactly what we're seeing and hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's not good, but it's exactly what's uh, happening. And Daryl and, and David are, are right. It's just not being taken into consideration now. Yeah, and uh, it has ever been thus. Uh, you know, I see blaring headlines, especially after last week with the census, new with the new data saying, you know, this is epic. This is not like it was before, and uh, <laughs> silence. Said, there's also and, and we have to learn to reinterpret it too. Yes, I think that probably Daryl and David would both uh, agree that we can't use the the old. Uh, uh, interpretations that we were using 15 years ago on on uh, those numbers that we do today, because those are different people, uh, uh, different health, different outlook, different intentions uh, than people of an age were 15, 20 years ago. And we might see it change dramatically after the election. Remember, there's no conservative leader right now federally. There's no upside to Ford right this minute picking a fight with Justin Trudeau. But may I remind us all that Ford is part of the consortium of provincial premiers demanding more money for health care. If the conservatives pick a strong leader uh, federally and uh, Trudeau seems even more vulnerable, I can foresee uh, without... Ford could change to a 180 at the drop of a hat if it's to his advantage to say the feds are stopping me from doing what's right for this province. We could fix it if it only weren't for the big bad feds. And that's been a playbook that has been run very successfully in the past as well. Okay, you know what? I'm looking. We're out of time. (laughs) But here's something we didn't even touch on. You know, a lot of People, okay, I won't say a lot of people, but there is an interpretation of the popularity of Pierre Polyevre, not right-left, but generational. He is very much the front-runner, and please don't comment on this because we're out of time. But uh, if if it is, in fact, a a generational change, so the question is, if he gets in, what what will happen on that front. But I'm just throwing that out there as something to think about because we're out of time, as I said. And thank you so much, Daryl Bricker, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. That was a really thank interesting you. conversation Thanks, today, I have yes, to say. Awesome. Thanks so much, Libby. Well, thank you. Thanks, Rebby. Okay. We are taking a break. And when we come back, I hope you haven't had enough election talk because we'll talk about what's going on municipally. Today was the first day to register to uh, put your nomination papers in. We'll talk about that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today is the first day candidates in Toronto's municipal election could register to run. And ever the early bird, Mayor John Tory, has already signed up. A couple of high-profile left-wing councillors have announced that they will not run again. I'm talking about Kristen Wong-Tam, who is running provincially, and Joe Cressy, who took a job in... uh, the uh, George Brown College, actually. And so far, we have seen one registered candidate in both these these wards, along with a higher profile candidate challenging longtime counselor Gord Perks in Parkdale High Park. Um, are you thinking about that at all, people? Municipal elections, you know, they get a really low turnout. Uh, is it going to be that way this time, or do you care about who is representing you? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And to give us the lay of the land, I'm calling on former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, Karen Stintz, and she, of course, was with our past strategy panel, and she will be with an exciting all-new municipal panel, which we will be unveiling very soon. Hi, Karen. Hi, Libby. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Well, so uh, the, uh, the the election season for, for the city has started. Uh, in, in general, what do you think? Now, John Tory was out there, he's registered, and he came out with a list of about 40 prominent-ish 
people in the city who are supporting him. Is he going to get any kind of opposition? No, I don't don't think so. I think when he announced that he was running for a third term, anybody who was thinking about launching a campaign decided to shelve it. Uh, So I think the, I mean, the benefit to John is it's going to be an easy race for him. I think the downside for everybody else is that no one's going to be paying attention. Uh huh. Um, municipal race. Well, I guess if nobody's paying attention, that's pretty good for him too. I think so. I think so. But I, and I think the other factor that comes into play is that um, with council being reduced to twenty-five councillors, um, there's really um, you, you just don't have the same debates, the same voices. There's not the same profile that individual councillors used to be able to generate. And so John really, the Mayor Tory, he really is the voice of the city, and he's the voice of council. And the the, the relative profile of every other councillor has really diminished, I think, over this last term. Yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, the way things are run here, uh, he may be the mayor, he may have profile, but he doesn't have that much power. No, he doesn't. He's been able to exercise quite a bit of it. I think circumstances uh, in the pandemic, mostly, uh, he was really the lead voice on council making the decisions and didn't face a lot of controversy and um, didn't really have to do much to get the votes he needed. So he he could be in for an interesting third term uh, because his first term, of course, there was so much goodwill that was built up towards his, his candidacy and his mayoralty. His second term, of course, had a pandemic that required him to be a strong leader and make these decisions that he did. He stepped up to that challenge. The third term, I think we'll see a council that gets a bit more um, agitated and I think will begin to assert itself maybe in a way that John hasn't been used to. Do you see those? I mean, there. I, I will read the names off. I'm really not familiar with uh, the, the candidates running to replace Wong Tam and Cressy. Uh, there is current TDSB trustee Chris Moyes or Moisey. Uh, and uh, the other person is Osma Malik. I think I've heard of her, but I'm not sure how I've heard of her. Oh, um, so she is running to replace Joe Cressy here in Liberty Village and, and the other downtown parts. And interesting to me, Syria Grell, who is a former journalist, I remember her well from when she was at The Post, but also... She's been an advisor to Kathleen Wynne and, I think, to Tory. She's running to replace Gord Perks, and he's been there for a very long time. I, I didn't get around to looking up how long, but it's long. Yeah, he's, I think he must be there for 12 years anyway. And, um, and he's quite formidable. And uh, I'm surprised I would have thought she would have picked one of the other wards to run in instead of running against Gord Perks. Uh, well, it... You know, the, the incumbent in a municipal election, I think, has an even bigger advantage than mm-hmm. in other levels of government. Um, you know, I remember there was at one point talk about limiting the terms. And it's I'm going to take a call in a moment uh, because uh, somebody just called about that. So um, do you think that's a good idea? You know, I, I, I think... I'll, I'll preface it by saying I don't think it benefits anybody, the community or the individual, to stay in politics for too long at the same level. The hard part is how long is long. And that's that's the part where I get more uncomfortable saying, you know, eight years is enough, 12 years is enough. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that there should be some limits to making a career out of being a, a city councillor, because I just don't think it serves anybody very well. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it- it, you're you're right. There is a question. I mean, I think it probably takes more than one term to get things done, considering how slowly the wheels go around. Mm-hmm. And the the question that I always have with actually any level of politics is that okay, you're there till your voters get tired of you, and then if you manage to do anything, it gets undone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so what's the point? <laughs> so I, and I mean, you know, that I obviously don't believe that because I spend a lot of my energy going through all this stuff that we should be doing. But uh, that's just a question. I'll, t- I'll take a question, uh, a comment from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi, Libby. 
Yeah, I uh, think they should all be limited to one single term. I think the quality of counselors that we get in there is, is definitely on the lower side of it. And I think just recycling new blood through there, you might get it right once in a while and get somebody a high quality in there to actually do something and get something done. And, you know, let's face it, most of these people are installed by different unions or whatever, different uh, uh, political movements. So I say just keep recycling it. You know, maybe you'll get lucky every third time and get a quality counselor. Uh, Okay, I I would... I think, first of all, that's very hard personally, because if you're, if you're going to do this, you have to quit your job uh, and you have to run. And then after one term, you have to get a new job, assuming that you're, you still need a job. So I think that makes it very, very difficult, uh, both, you know, from what you have to do and financially. And what do you get, Libby? You get a government job working at George Brown with full pension, the whole nine yards of it. So there's 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 not much risk. There's a lot of reward, apparently. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, he has family connections that might have helped with that. So, <laughs> Well, even better, eh? <laughs> even better. So, you know, uh, I know, I'm, Karen, maybe you can speak to this. Uh, how, uh, Bill, thanks for your call. How personally disruptive is it to drop everything and decide, hey, I'm running for city council? Well, it's a, certainly a barrier that is difficult to overcome. And um, I was extremely lucky because my workplace gave me a leave of absence. And um, the campaign cycle wasn't that long, so I was able to use up my holiday period. So I, I had a very supportive boss and a very supportive environment where I could actually run for city council. Um, but it is, I mean, to your point, Libby, it's hard to keep a job and run for council. And uh, it is based on name recognition. And it's hard, particularly with the wards being as large as they are now, to get your name out there. And so, you know, whether there is, a, you know, a sense that, you know, you should sh- shake off the old dust, probably it's possible. But I think having people limited to one term wouldn't create better governance at the city. Yeah, I, 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 I think I have to agree with that, but maybe two terms isn't a bad suggestion. <laughs> Though, uh, you know, again, I can, I can see the difficulties. And, and Karen, would you say, I'm talking about local initiatives. I mean, when it comes to the city, people care about their garbage. They care about their taxes. They care about safe roads near their homes, Right. I mean, there is no question about it. That's how exactly long does it, I mean, I know even around in our neighborhood, it is takes forever to get a traffic light. Yeah. And that, that to your point, exactly. That's what motivates people to come out and vote municipally and to get involved and call their counselor. And I remember some of the most controversial meetings that council or with my community, rather, they were about development, first and foremost. Then it was about changing street parking. Um, and then it was about off-leash dog parks. And so <laughs> those are in that order. <laughs> so, you know, and then it was the stop signs and then the initiatives around schools and investing in the parks. But, you know, it's those sorts of things to be candid that actually make the job worthwhile. Going and fighting at city council over some initiative, to your point, that has a very good chance of getting undone isn't, isn't really that inspiring. Um, it's really, it is getting to know the community and feeling as if you're making a difference in making a more livable community for those who, um, those that you serve. Well, yeah, Karen, um, thanks so much for that. We'll be talking about this a lot before that election rolls around, but also just, at, uh, you know, how the sausages are made and what's important. <laughs> and I really appreciate your insight. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Sounds good. Take care. Bye-bye. We're taking another break, and when we come back, I know that most of you will vote and want to get to the serious questions, so Andrea Horvath, when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As the provincial election campaign kicks into high gear, we continue our talks with party leaders 
Last week, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca was here talking about his plan to put home care at the center of long-term care. And today I am welcoming NDP leader Andrea Horvath. And today she is focusing on health care with a promise to accelerate the credentials of 15,000 internationally trained nurses that are in Ontario now and to issue quick job offers for up to 2,000 of them. And this would be part of a $60 million investment program. Andrea Horvath, welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Always my pleasure, Libby. Always my pleasure. So first of all, this plan, you're saying that by hiring these nurses, that will get rid of some of the wait times. Uh, Explain your thinking on that. Well, what we know for sure is that uh, healthcare workers, particularly nurses, are leaving the healthcare profession in droves. Uh, we we see uh, nurses retiring; they're leaving; uh, they're giving up on uh, on a career that they love because they're they're being disrespected by the government, uh, and they're exhausted. They're exhausted. They've been working so hard during COVID, uh, and what they're what they've been telling me is uh, they they just don't feel like the government is uh, is respecting the work that they do. Uh, and then, of course. As people were getting ill with COVID, and now we have all of these procedures and surgeries that are backlogged, uh, we need more healthcare professionals, not fewer. Uh, so that's why we've decided to take this uh, to take this um, plan forward and and talk to not only Ontarians uh, but uh, healthcare professionals who want to practice in their field. They they sat on the sidelines. Uh, as uh, as we needed them the most, or when we needed them most during COVID, and, and we need to uh, not only give them the you know the the dignity of a great job that uh, that pays well, uh, but also our healthcare system needs them desperately so that more people can uh, can get the care that they need. Have you done calculations? Say if you if you have quick job offers for two thousand of them, have you done some kind of calculation on how how far that would reduce wait times and for what? Well, what, we need nurses in all parts of the healthcare system, uh, particularly in hospitals uh, right now. There's a, a lot of stress and a lot of uh, burnout, uh, and uh, and and we know that. We, I just I talked to a couple of folks today who said that they are trained in, as registered nurses in their home countries, but there are massive barriers to getting um, accredited here, and so and it's. It's frustrating. Uh, they, people feel, you know, very um, uh, like they're being treated very unfairly, uh, and and they they just they, they, it's demoralizing for them. And they look to the United States, uh, and and they can get accredited within six months if they're a registered nurse from uh, uh, some of the com- uh, countries that uh, we've welcomed people from here in Ontario. So I mean, if it can be done in the states, it can be done here, and we've worked with numbers from the Registered Nurses Association and the Ontario Nurses Association. Uh, that's where we have our information from, and, and that's why we know that we can get this done. Uh, right. So are you planning to quantify how that would impact wait lists? Oh, well, absolutely. What, what, we, are, what we know uh, is that we, can, we could be operating uh, our, our, our ERs, our, our, um, not our ERs, our ORs, rather, our operating rooms. We could be ensuring that people are getting uh, their their treatments and surgeries and procedures quicker if, they, if we have the staff working 24-7. So 24-7 uh, around the clock. But the problem is we don't have the staff uh, to um, to ramp up uh, the uh, the services. And, and that's, that's why we've taken this uh, this uh, so seriously is because in some the some estimations are that people are going to wait four or five years uh, to get the the kinds of uh, surgeries that would make their lives better that would reduce the pain that would stop uh, uh, their health from deteriorating. Ontarians deserve that. So uh, you mentioned some of the nurses' unions. There's also the colleges, the self-regulating colleges that that do the certifications. What do they say about this? I'm assuming you've been in touch. Uh, well, and, and what we are hearing is that uh, the backlog of uh, of getting people through the process is uh, uh, is significant. And so, what we are saying in our plan is we will invest a million dollars annually uh, to push uh, to push through um, you know a, a speedier uh, processing for these um, for these internationally trained professionals. It's uh, it's 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 doable. Uh, it's necessary. 
it's just that governments have ignored this for far too long. I mean, this is not a new problem, Libby. I'm sure you know that yeah. this is something that's been a problem for decades here in Ontario. But where is the problem? Is the question is the prov- is the problem with self-regulating uh, those bodies that are essentially gatekeepers for the profession? Is there a problem with unions who, to some extent, are the same? Uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure where exactly this bottleneck is. Yeah, though no, I know I'm it's. Glad, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you raised it. We actually uh, have a um, a bill in the legislature that uh, addresses all of the barriers that exist. There's a number of them. Uh, The process is onerous, and so we need to look at uh, exactly how other jurisdictions are able to have a a process that's that's more uh, manageable, that's easier to navigate. Uh, We know that the experience, uh, having experience in Ontario is a piece that is required, and yet there are no pathways uh, that exist for people to get that experience. Uh, we know that if folks have been here for a, a very long time and haven't had a chance to uh, uh, to get the education uh, to upgrade to, uh, for example, to a registered nurse from a uh, from an RPN, if it takes too long, then they lose their accreditation. And so there's there are lots of barriers right now, uh, and uh, and we've done the homework. I mean, we've we've met with uh, the internationally trained professionals. We've we've met with. Uh, other, but we've met with the RNAO and with the uh, uh, folks that represent these workers uh, to uh, because it's it's good for everybody. And wh- what do what do they say? I'm trying to get a sense of who is the barrier. I you seem uh, reluctant. No, not at all. Not at all. It, it's not just one barrier. That's what I'm saying. It's not just one. But what uh, about these organizations? Are they the barrier? Not, no, not at all. But I mean, they are insofar as, for example, the college doesn't have the resources. To uh, to more speedily get the accreditations going, do you know what I mean? That's yeah. part of the that's part of the barrier. It's not because they don't want to; uh, it's because they don't have the capacity. And so that's why we're saying we're going to fund uh, the college to provide more capacity uh, so that they can uh, process more quickly the uh, the folks that um, that should be able to get their accreditation. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, as far as you see it is a capacity issue, and it's not a. Uh, it's not something else. Well, it, it's a couple of things. So it's uh, it's, it's cap- capacity. Uh, it's that the there are no uh, formalized pathways to get the local experience, and so we have to create those, which means we have to work uh, with the healthcare sector uh, to pr- to make sure that those uh, pathways are uh, are developed, and uh, and and that opens the opportunity for people to. Uh, uh, you know, to get that experience, uh, it, it, there's uh, there are issues around, um, you know, around the the ability of uh, of internationally trained nurses to uh, you know to access placements, for example, as well. Uh, but once once they're here and they're uh, they could have you know even got their accreditation, but they but the placements have been hard to uh, to to find. And so it's it, so again, it's not just one. It's not just you know. There's one lever that we need to to pull, and and the floodgates will open. It's it's a it's a very complicated, uh, overly complicated process. And what we need to do is uh, is really go at it seriously, which no government has done ever in the in our province. In in general, uh, would you say you are focusing on on healthcare in the campaign? Am I correct? There's a couple of things, uh, Libby, and of course you and I have talked about seniors care many times, uh, and I really uh, do appreciate the work that you did for uh, for for older people and uh, vulnerable people in long-term care for many years now. Thanks. But yeah, I mean, obviously, I think COVID has shown us a couple of things. One is that our healthcare system is absolutely broken, uh, and that people will be able to save a lot of money if we made access to certain services uh, affordable for them through public uh uh, public coverage. So that's why we have not only a plan for seniors care, home care, as well as long-term care, uh, get the profits out, get the care back in, uh, but also make sure that people have dental care and uh, that people have mental health support. That's another big thing that COVID showed us. And in fact, it has, it has become worse in our province is, uh, is access to mental health care and the number of people who need uh, some counseling that need some therapy. Uh, so you could get that therapy with your OHIP card, not your credit card. Uh, and, of course, uh, what we've talked about many times, as you probably recall, 
prescription drugs. Bring uh, bring prescription drugs uh, into uh, uh, into the public um, uh, the public uh, OHIP system so that that people can get the drugs they need. Keep them out of the hospital. Keep them well for longer, uh, and make sure that they can afford uh, to take the uh, to take the the drugs that they're prescribed by the physicians. Uh- we don't have very much time left. Uh, in an earlier segment, I was uh, talking to Daryl Bricker, who tells me that your party, the NDP, polls highest in terms of fixing health care, but he doesn't really think that's the ballot question or that will be the ballot question. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I think people have a lot of things on their mind right now. I think people understand that this election uh, is uh, is an extremely uh, important one that uh, that it's uh, it's there's a lot at stake in this election. Uh, people have seen life get harder and harder under Doug Ford in the last four years. But let's face it, the Liberals brought us hallway medicine. I mean, they sold off Hydro One. Um, you know, the gas plant scandal. All of these things are are the reasons why people didn't support the Liberals uh, last time around, and they were hoping for for better uh, from Mr. Ford, but they didn't get it. Uh, we still see the cost of everything going through the roof. People can't afford, uh, you know, to keep their roof over their heads. They're worried about keeping the roof over their heads. And in the meantime, everything is costing more. Housing, the housing crisis is, is out of control. Uh, and Doug Ford's made it worse, not better. So I, I think that I don't know that there's one, one particular thing when, when so many things are broken. What, what people are telling me is they just want a government not that's going to offer the moon and the stars, but a government that's going to take care of the things that matter most to them. Okay. Well, Andrea Horvath, I really appreciate your time, and I hope that we will be talking relatively uh, often throughout the campaign. Thank you very much for being with us. I hope so, too, Libby. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, well, and uh, we hope to be talking to Doug Ford at some point as well, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.